So stop me if you've heard this one. Actually, that's rhetorical. <laughs> Don't stop me, and you probably have heard this one. The doctrine of the Trinity is like an egg. Three parts, one thing. Or how about this? The Trinity is like water, three forms, ice, steam, liquid, one substance. But honestly, the silliest one I have ever personally heard is the Trinity is like three-in-one shampoo, three activities, one substance. There are a couple of other well-known ones. The Trinity is like a woman who is simultaneously mother, daughter, and wife, or the Trinity is like a person who is one yet has spirit, soul, and body. They're all somewhat creative, but they're all also somewhat heretical. All of them. Please don't use them ever. <laughs> Here's where they fall off the rails of orthodoxy. The Trinity is like an egg is a heresy called tritheism. The belief that we have three gods who share a similar nature, but not the exact same nature. While the egg is one, each of the substances that makes up the parts, the shell, the white stuff, which is what, called albumin, albumin or anyway, the white stuff, you know what I'm talking about, and yolk are most definitely distinct. The yolk is completely separate in nature from the shell. The trinity is like water, is just straight out modalism, the belief that God is one God who shows himself in three different ways, sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. Water as ice, steam, and liquid are examples of the same nature that at one time or another has a particular mode of existence. Sometimes it's liquid, sometimes it's ice, and sometimes it's steam. But God is not sometimes Son, sometimes Father, and sometimes spirit. He is eternally each, always at the same time. Three-in-one shampoo is just bad and somehow manages simultaneously to be both tritheism and modalism. So probably going to hell if you use that one. <laughs> Man, I won't go into all of them. You get the picture. A big part of the problem is the Enlightenment need to explain everything or to reduce it to terms that can be explained. But in the end, there's just no simple true-to-life illustration or metaphor that can be used to teach or describe the Trinity. The Trinity is paradox, things that seem contradictory but are simultaneously true. Truth that exists in inherent tension. And as paradox is fundamentally a mystery. Or, as the most interesting man in the world might put it, I don't often talk about paradox, but when I do, I don't. It says here, wait for laughs, and that got over really fast. <laughs> For many centuries, the church has used the graphic you have in your bulletin, that little handout for you at home, the one that's the next page in the bulletin called the Trinity Shield, to illustrate this mystery without ever making any attempt whatsoever to explain it. 
I've included it in the original Latin as well as in English. But in either language, its message is straightforward. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. They are one God. But they are not each other. And when we simply acknowledge these realities and embrace the tensions without rebuttal, then we're within the bounds of orthodoxy. But when we seek to relieve that inherent tension, we risk stumbling into error. The Athanasian Creed, named for but not written by Athanasius of Alexandria, gives articulating the mystery of the Trinity a valiant go. This creed that's been in use since the 6th century is one of the three creeds universally received by the church today, or as we say, ecumenically received by the church. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. We don't say the Athanasian Creed much today because it's about 750 words long, and modern and postmodern and whatever the heck we are now, people, some are using the term transmodern, I don't know if that's true, but it's kind of a sociological term that's being used, whatever, we simply don't have that kind of attention span. Line three begins, the Catholic faith, Catholic here being the universal faith, is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, one of the Son, and one of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory, the equal, the majesty, co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father is the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also there are not three uncreated nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. That section on the Trinity goes on for about another 20 lines or so, but we're already shaking our heads at the, at the incomprehensibleness. <laughs> that is a lot of letters of it all. The Catechism in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer gives it a simpler answer. Question, what is the Trinity? Answer, the Trinity is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a simpler answer for sure, but one that still leaves inquiring minds wanting to know. And I think that's a big part of the problem. We want to know, to analyze, to, to explain the Trinity when what we're talking about is mystery. But mystery is ultimately inexplicable. And in the end, words fail. Mystery is more a matter of the heart than of the brain. Kind of like being in love. Poets and songwriters have wrestled to articulate this voice, this since humanities had words, and, and every attempt to capture it ultimately fails. It's called incomprehensible for a reason and has been the bane of preachers for generations which is why, generally speaking, we look for our associate to do the preaching on Trinity Sunday. 
and I looked back through my records, and indeed, Ian has preached the last, had preached the last four Trinity Sundays and got out of town just in time. <laughs> so where to start? Well, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. See, the Old Testament begins the first verses of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, pointing to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, the creative energetic force of all creation. But these verses also give glimpses of the other two persons of the mystery as they depict the immense power of the Spirit of God that hovers and broods over darkness and then offer the piercing image of the light of God as the first act of creation that he spoke into existence after the earth is formed the light that disrupts the darkness and cannot be overcome by it. Genesis 1 looks into the heart of darkness and sees something truly beautiful and hopeful, a creative force, a, a, a hovering spirit, and a penetrating light that cannot be overcome. When God determined to create humanity, he said something very curious. Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. This isn't the royal we. The term used there for God is Elohim. Don't look it up. <laughs> he, has a, he has a Hebrew Old Testament up there with him. So, um, Elohim. It is a plural noun that's used something like 2,600 times in the Old Testament. So God was fond of calling himself us and we. So from the first page of Scripture, we're given a glimpse of the mystery of the Trinity. One God, but more than one. And you get a sense that it was their delight to create humanity, since they, in their performance review, declared it very good. This idea of delight forms a really beautiful understanding of the Trinity that comes from Meister Eckhart, a 14th century German mystic. He wrote that God the Father laughed, and the Son was born. Then the two of them laughed and the spirit was born. When all three laughed, human beings were born. For Eckhart, the mystery of the Trinity was surrounded by peals of laughter at the heart of the universe. And this would seem to be wholeheartedly affirmed by the testimony in Proverbs 8, 22 through 31 of the personification of wisdom. She says, God sovereignly made me the first the basic, before he did anything else. I was brought into being a long time ago, well before earth got its start. I arrived on the scene before ocean, yes, even before springs and rivers and lakes. Before mountains were sculpted and hills took shape, I was already there, newborn. Long before God stretched out earth's horizons and tended to the minute details of soil and weather, and set sky firmly in place, I was there. When he drew a boundary for the sea and then staked out earth's foundations, I was right there with him, making sure everything fit. 
day after day. I was there in joyful play, always enjoying his company, delighted with the world of things and creatures, happily celebrating humanity. How often do you imagine God in delightful laughter and play? Probably not enough. But let's approach this from another perspective and consider an artistic visual depiction of the Trinity. One of the most compelling is an iconic image, get it iconic, um, of the Holy Trinity created by Andrei Rublev, who lived in the 14th century in Russia and is generally acknowledged as Russia's greatest iconographer. He was born around 1365 near Moscow, and while very young, he entered monastic life and later studied iconography. The icon in the bulletin is a reproduction of Rublev's most famous icon, because the original is in pretty bad shape. This reproduction was written by a Roman Catholic monk called Brother Eldridge. And I say written by him and not painted intentionally. Icons tell stories. Thus, they are written. As a result of Rublev's playing through scripture, he began to understand the three messengers who visited Abraham and Sarah and announced the future birth of a child to this aged couple in Genesis 18 as precursors of the Holy Trinity in the New Testament. The story in the book of Genesis speaks of the oaks at Mamre, and, and so you see a rendition of an oak in the top center soaring high. The tent of Abraham and Sarah has been stylized here in the upper left into a mansion. A mountain rises high, upper right, the mountain on which Moses would receive the Ten Commandments. The three angelic visitors were served a feast of lamb prepared by Sarah and Abraham. And so we get the three angels sitting at a banquet table. Rublev called this icon the hospitality of Abraham. But he also had another name for it, the Holy Trinity. The second interpretation models how we as Christians look back on the Hebrew scriptures with a new eye in light of the revelation we experience in Jesus Christ, which is exactly what he did on the road to Emmaus. We see in the New Testament what was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. The three angels are now a depiction of the Holy Trinity. The tree, the oak at Mamre, foreshadows the cross. The tent, depicted as a mansion, is now the dwelling place Jesus has gone to prepare for his followers. The mountain has become the, mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus shone with the light of God's glory. The meal that is served at this table is now Eucharistic. It's still lamb, the lamb of God served in a chaliced ciborium. These three persons all hold staffs of authority. On the left there is God the Father, the blue garment almost hidden by a translucent ethereal robe. Jesus is de depicted at the center, wearing a blue garment, half covering a shimmering robe, depicting his nature as the incarnation, in the incarnation as both God and man. The sash over his right shoulder ascribes his kingly power. 
This is Jesus, the surprising, long-awaited Messiah. Jesus, the innocent, afflicted, saving, healing incarnation of God. Jesus, the Son who embodies God with us on earth. Emmanuel. Then 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus leaves. At least he leaves the earth in bodily form. But in his leaving, he promises not to leave us comfortless. He says we'll experience even more of what we've seen in him through God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is shown on the right, wearing a garment of blue depicting eternity and green depicting new life. This is God the Spirit whom we experience as unifying, sustaining, empowering, reminding, interrupting, convincing, convicting, truth revealing, who comes in power at Pentecost and who remains with us today. Thanks be to God. As you dwell on this image, you become aware that these three figures seem to be looking deeply into each other with an unqualified dignity respectful, and loving gaze. Three distinct persons, three yet one. And this hints at a couple of striking things. First one is this, God forever dwells in an, in, in an intimate community of love. Theologians call this perichoresis. The dynamic Trinitarian life is centered on communication, relationship, and affection. And since we are created in God's image, the quality of our Christian life is based on our imitation of the interior life of the Trinity. The Trinity is the model for human community, most especially the church, which is Christ's body. It shows how love creates unity out of diversity and rejects any notion of individualism and autonomy. In short, being created in the image of God means we are literally created for community. And as I have spoken to people from Redeemer over the past several weeks, because of the disruption of the past year, the number one desire expressed for us is a desire to enter once again into deep community within our own body. Our expectation in the church ought to be that we know and are known by each other that we know the details and desires of each other's lives and hearts, that we love and pray for and care for one another at all times. It's time for us to re-engage. But how? I talked about this a few weeks ago. I mentioned, I think, five ways that day, and I've got one that's just slightly different. But they're not, they are not rocket science, which begs the question, what do rocket scientists say? It's not like, it's not like meeting girls. <laughs> that was Gary Larson, by the way, who said that. One is just come to church. Come to church. I'm talking to a lot of people who might come back someday. I'm not, I try not to tell people what they need, but I will tell you, community, you need that. Children's formation you need the church to serve you in that and help you in that. Two, just invite someone to join you for lunch when you do come to church. Restaurants are all open now. Have someone over for dinner. You can do that. Or host a dinner party. 
host or co-host a community or a reading group in your home. By the way, women, you are going to be receiving a survey this week uh, for a book study that we are going to be offering um, on the book, the, Litur the Liturgy of the Ordinary. We are looking very much forward to that. Um, join us for morning prayer sometime if you can. That has become a praying community who's in each other's lives every day. Shoot. You're the most responsible, intelligent, and creative people I know. But you've got to want it. It can't be done for you. That's the bottom line of community. The other striking thing about this icon is not what's there, but rather what's not there. It's, it's the empty place. The fourth side of the table is left open intentionally by Rublev, signaling an invitation for the viewer to draw near and even to take a seat at the table and join in this intimate communion. In a profound sense, the person viewing the icon completes the image by joining the circle of the sacred three. And you're the fourth guest. God gives us all an invitation to the table to share in the life of God. For some of us, that invitation may be wonderful and immediate, like someone who loves us, greeting us with the words, welcome home. There's a place set for you here. For others of us, we may find some resistance within ourselves to this welcome by God. The resistance may have to do with our sense of unworthiness to receive God's welcome, to know God's love. We may think we've got too much stuff in our past or maybe even our present, which just became our past. Too many screw-ups, too much brokenness, too much inconsistency for God to actually love us. But God knows better. You see, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit really does love us. We are, in fact, in Zechariah 2.8, called the apple of God's eye. And, love for God, love, and God's love for us is not ultimately because of us. God's love for us is because of God. There is no question of worthiness, quote-unquote, in God's eye, because that's been settled. Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, life, death, Death on the cross, resurrection and ascension covers for us. Jesus puts in the good word, the benediction for us and intercedes for us and saves us. And all we must do is in repentance, receive him by faith. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, you must be born again. And you must be. I hope that you will accept God's invitation to take a seat at the table in the circle of love, welcoming us, literally adoring us, saying, welcome to the Eucharistic table. It's set for you. Come. Henry Nouwen, a well-known 20th century Dutch theologian and author, spent hundreds of hours gazing on this icon during a particular time in his life of severe depression. He writes about that journey in his book, Behold the Beauty of the Lord. He says that gradually over many months through that image, he came to know the Trinity as a community of perfect love. In that community, there was no fear, no greed, no anger, no violence, no anxieties, no pain, no suffering, even no words, only love. 
enduring love, and deepening trust. It was a community, he said, in which he could dwell forever. Indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.